Hello and welcome. This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well. Hope you're doing well. Joining me today is Carrie Mayer. She's the acclaimed historical novelist who brought us uh, several great books, including The Kennedy Debutante, a love story about Kathleen Kick Kennedy, JFK's sister, The Girl in White Gloves, about movie star and Princess Grace Kelly, and then the latest that we're going to be talking about, The Paris Bookseller, about an American woman running the much-loved Paris bookstore Shakespeare and Company and her courageous fight to defeat censorship while publishing one of the world's most famous novels. I'm excited to have our guests join us, and I know you'll find our conversation stimulating. So without any further ado, let's ask Carrie Mayer to join us on mic. I am delighted to speak with you. I love the book and I love books about books and you do too, obviously, Carrie. I do. And thank you so much for having me this morning. I'm excited to chat with you. By the way, we're neighbors in a sense. You're living in the Boston or I should say the Massachusetts area. Yeah, I live in Weston, right next to um, Wellesley and Newton. Good place to be if you're a writer. A lot of fine writing gets done around here, doesn't it? It's really, it's really true. I actually, my first address in town was Hawthorne Lane at the corner of Byron Road. <laughs> uh, doesn't get much more uh, literate than that. So here's a story that a lot of us may not be familiar with, but when you talk about James Joyce, most people know the name and know the, the work but not how the work got published in one particular case. What attracted you, before we dig into it, what attracted you to this wonderful story? Well, so I've actually been carrying Sylvia Beach's story and, and her, the, the story of her publishing Ulysses around for my entire adult life. You know, I was an undergraduate um, at UC Berkeley and I was, um, you know, I was an English major obsessed with the 1920s. I would take as many classes in those for that time period as possible. And I was especially interested in the expats um, who, who found themselves in Paris during that decade. And, you know, those wonderful bargain book bins in front of, you know, college bookstores. I was rummaging around in one of those one day and I found a used copy of Sylvia's own memoir. You know, I read the back of it. It's called, it's called Shakespeare and Company. I bought it, took it home and I read it and I was just really entranced by her story. You know, like Ernest Hemingway was a good friend of hers. She knew F. Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein and, and everybody. Um, but, you know, I was 20 years old and I kind of filed it away under good to know um, and went about the rest of my life. Um, fast forward 20 plus years and here I am writing historical fiction. And after my first two uh, historical novels, I was kind of thinking about what I would write, like to write about next. And I really quickly homed in on Sylvia Beach. And it's sort of surprising to me that I didn't think about writing about her earlier because I have been carrying her story around inside me for so long. But I'm really glad that I'm really glad that I didn't because um, I think I needed the practice of writing some historical fiction before I was ready to put words in the mouth of like Ernest Hemingway and James yeah. Joyce. Oh, it's so great to meet these characters. It, it reminds me a lot of that movie, the Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris. Uh, yes. I'm sure you're That's familiar with that. But yes. um, before we dig into some of the history, um, it's really interesting uh, uh, to take a look at a character like this who has been missed by so many and you bring her to life. And it's not just what she did, but sort of how she lived and who she was. How much research and how, what kind of research went into digging into her, her personal life and her, the way she carried herself, the way she dressed? I mean, there's so much detail. 
Yeah. So, well, one of the first things I did was to reread her memoir. <laughs> um, and, you know, her memoir, I say this in my author's note, her memoir is a remarkably small book considering what an incredible life she led. Um, and she left a lot of things out, which was great for me as a novelist, because I got to, you know, imagine a lot of things that she didn't write about herself. Um, and, you know, there's also a wonderful um, sort of definitive biography, I think, of her, and also really this time period. It's called Sylvia Beach um, and the Lost Generation uh, by Noelle Riley Fitch. And it's, it's, it's a pretty, it's a very substantial biography and history. Um, and that was, um, you know, really enlightening for me to read. Um, there was also, I also really wanted to understand the kind of the 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 artistic and legal stakes in the the two trials that you the novel Ulysses went through in the American legal system, and for that I went to there were two great books about that actually that have come out very recently. One is by Kevin Birmingham, who is also a neighbor of ours. He's um, at Harvard. It's called The Most Dangerous Book. That was very interesting. Um, and another is, is called The Ulysses Trial by Joseph Hassett, which is a little bit more um, kind of legal focused. But both of those books were super mm -hmm. important for me. And both of those books talk quite a lot about Sylvia um, and also the other women who shepherded uh, uh, Ulysses to publication. So well, that's just a little flavor of the research that I did. I also, I got to go to Paris, which was really wonderful. Oh, research. Isn't that a beautiful yeah. thing when you can go to Paris and research all the, and by the way, no. the, the store is still there and uh, obviously under different owners over the years. Yeah. So, so the, there is a current Shakespeare and company in Paris. It is a wonderful, magical place, but it is not, it is not at actually at all related to Sylvia's original. The, the current Shakespeare and Company um, in Paris <clears throat> was opened in 1950. Well, first of all, I should just say, Sylvia had to close her store in 1941 during the Nazi, Nazi occupation, and she never reopened. In 1951, another enterprising bookselling American named George Whitman opened the current Shakespeare and Company location under a different name called Le Mistral. And actually, Sylvia was a regular of his. Um, she used to come there and buy books. Um, and it wasn't until 1964 that George rechristened the store Shakespeare and Company on the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's birth. And, you know, the current Shakespeare and Company, and has been in that location since 1951, is very much a tribute to Sylvia's original. If you go to the store, um, there's all kinds of great information and history and ephemera from her store. Um, and so it is a continuation, but there was, it's it's not the same store and, and it's not in the same location that her store was in. It's a 10 minute walk away. Okay. So here it is. It's, it's the late teens, the war's ending and it's the early twenties and Paris is a happening place for a lot of Americans. Jazz is popular there and American authors. What, what is the what is the reason that it's such a hot spot for Americans, for expatriates at that point? Well, I think we have to start with what was happening in America at the time, right? So the war has ended and the war itself is a major piece of this, right? Like, so the war decimated most of a generation. It decimated the sort of social and cultural um, and moral fabric of society in America and in Europe. Um, and and young, young people, especially young artists, are really looking to make meaning, um, make, remake the world from the ashes, as I sort of say in the novel. Um, and, and 
many, many of the, the people who survived the war, like Ernest Hemingway, um, who drove an ambulance, had had spent then some subst- mm. substantial time in Europe and wanted to go back. They sort of saw a different way of life in Europe um, and especially in France, and they wanted to to be there. Um, at the same time, some very conservative forces were taking hold in America. There was a kind of very, very strong anti-immigrant sentiment in in, um, in America. Prohibition had just become law. So like suddenly alcohol was illegal. There was just, and there was a lot of fear and anxiety in America about anything different. And so for these young artists, they were like, well, we want to embrace different. We want to embrace new. And so ironically, they had to go to the old world (laughs) for that newness. And Paris kind of quickly became the hub of that movement. And I think that there are there are many reasons for that. Um, and Shakespeare and Company became one of those reasons. Yeah, in those days, uh, a bookstore would be uh, a, a big gathering place, a social gathering place. There's no social media, of course. There's right. the bookstore and the cafes and the and the uh, saloons, if you will. But I mean, that was really a gathering spot. And the other part of that, of course, is the fact that it's the city of lights, the city of love. And forbidden love, perhaps in the United States, wasn't as forbidden in Paris at all. I mean, and I mean, uh, she was uh, a proud lesbian, as were many others, Gertrude Stein. So they were allowed, without kind of the friction they would have back here, to live the lives they wanted. Yeah, that was a very interesting piece of my research because I kind of intuited from you know mm. my lifetime of reading that you know, same-sex couples were able to kind of be more open in themselves in Paris during this time. But I had to kind of, I had to do some research to, to, to verify that. And I discovered some some interesting um, things that I didn't know before, one of which was that same-sex relations were decriminalized in France at the time of the French Revolution, which was, you know, right after the American Revolution. And so this idea we have I think many people have that Paris is this kind of safe haven for same sex relationships and has has always been that way is true. And it's rooted in the the law. Um, But the other thing that I that was very interesting is like sort of the concept of the closet, as we understand Mm. it today, wasn't was not a construct in the 19 teens and 20s. So to be in a same-sex relationship, in particular, I think a female same-sex relationship, you know, all through the Victorian era, there were female companions, right? Um, it was just thought of differently then than it is now. Indeed. And I had to kind of wrap my head around that. Yeah, you're, you're taking us, as great novelists who do historical fiction, you're taking us to another time. And everything about that time, the food, the the coffee in the cafes, the weather, uh, the aftermath of the war, and of course the lifestyle of the people is is so vivid. Now let's get to the crux of the story because it really is a, uh, in a sense, a thriller about something that <laughs> normally isn't thrilling, and that is the publishing of a book. We take that for granted, but let's talk about James Joyce and the controversy surrounding Ulysses and how it got to Sylvia and how she helped get this thing published. Why was Ulysses and why was James Joyce such a controversial figure? Right. So as Sylvia is opening Shakespeare and Company in 1919, um, James Joyce's novel Ulysses is being serialized in these um, avant-garde literary journals. And in New York, um, in America, that was The Little Review that was published by Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap. 
out of out of Greenwich Village. And, you know, in these early days of Shakespeare and Company, as uh, American and British writers are kind of coming to the store, and in fact, James Joyce himself moves his family to Paris um, and becomes a regular at the store, um, the New York Society from the, for the Suppression of Vice, the Vice Squad, <laughs> under the leadership of John Sumner, um, is really... Um, watching for these uh, serialized chapters of Ulysses in the little review because it's widely um, considered to be obscene. I'm putting, you know, rabbit ears around the right. obscene. Right. Um, and, and they're actually using the post office as an instrument of censorship. So, you know, the, the, the journal has to mail copies to their subscribers. And so they, the post office will actually seize copies of the little review so they don't meet, reach their readers and they will either burn them um, or, I, I, you know, I don't know what else they did with them. But ultimately, um, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap are brought to trial for serializing potentially in a potentially obscene novel. And that trial happens in 1921. And indeed, Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap are, are, are convicted of a publishing obscene material. And, and I think one of the things that's interesting is Joyce and the novel itself were never on trial. It was the two mm. women who were publishing um, the chapters. Um, and and so so there is Joyce and Sylvia and Ezra Pound and Ernest Hemingway and everybody in Paris waiting with bated breath for the news because, as you mentioned, there was no social media. You have to wait for newspapers to make their way all the way across the ocean from New York. So they they knew that this was happening, but they were really behind um, in Paris. They were very behind on the news. They had to wait um, to find out what was happening. And so and, Sil Sylvia takes it upon herself with with suggestions and help from others. And this is in a time when publishing something is not like it is today. I, I, I self-published my little book on Amazon and print to order was pretty darn easy. But yes. it, it's it's so daunting. And for a woman to take the mantle up, uh, particularly challenging. Tell us more about how this evolved, this this action of hers. Yeah. So so when when it becomes clear that Ulysses has been um, become a banned book and all the American and British publishers who had been clamoring to publish it in book form pull out their offers, Sylvia almost right away um, offers to publish it under the auspices of Shakespeare and Company. And Joyce, James Joyce um, says yes. And so they embark on this amazing adventure together in publishing Ulysses. First of all, Ulysses isn't even finished. So he has to finish it while he's like he has terrible health problems with it, which include he's like losing his eyesight. Um, and so that is happening. Um, Sylvia is um, trying to figure out what the, you know, the official version of Ulysses is from, you know, the versions that have appeared in the literary journals, the, the pages that Joyce himself have, has written. She's employing typists to type it up so that she can send the typewritten pages to the printer in Dijon. Um, who knows that he's publishing a banned book, a book that has been banned in Britain and in America. Um, but he's like, whatever, I'm going to do it anyway, which I just find so French and wonderful. Um, and 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 then, so as you said, it's not print on demand. They have to, you sort of have to imagine like the Gutenberg, you know, yeah. like. Typesetting um, the, the letters. Typesetting the actual <laughs> letters. Okay, so this this is a oh my gosh. process, right? And so, but even worse, so the printer whose name is um, Maurice Darantier 
sends the page proofs back to Sylvia and Joyce just for proofreading, right? And Joyce winds up scribbling all over them and, you know, writing notes in the margin. You know, I think there's an estimate that says he wrote a third of Ulysses on the page proofs. Mm. And and by the way, I mean I, I've tried to get through Ulysses. I'm not. I'm going to admit defeat. It's a very dense story, and the way he writes. I went to Ireland in, a few years ago, and and they just uh, you know laud Joyce everywhere. They have museums dedicated to him. But uh, the idea of publishing something that is so, I want to say complex. My God, it's not like you know Jonathan Livingston Seagull here. We're talking some serious writing. And very yeah, dense and, pages. <laughs> yeah, dense. And also, you know, because of what Joyce is doing formally with the yeah. sentence and with the paragraph and with punctuation, all of that, all of the formal qualities of type, right, become super important. Um, and really, all things considered, it's an, even though everyone knows that this 1922 edition has many errors in it, it's really still quite a feat. No, it's it's an incredible piece of work, and and that along with Finnegan's Wake and all the other pieces of literature, he's a he's a giant. But she goes out on a huge limb. I mean, you know, you're dealing with having to pay the rent and having to pay the the heat, and and then having to publish this book that's so controversial. And there's a as a a lawyer in America that enters the fray, um, the big bad American here. Tell us about him and and what she was facing when it was you know, time to get this thing done. Yeah, John Quinn is such an, a fascinating character. So John Quinn helped organize the Armory Art Show, which was a watershed art show of Impressionist and Post-Impressionist art in, and I'm embarrassingly blanking on the exact uh, year. I want to say it was 1913. But it was really the show that brought like, um, you know, Matisse and Cezanne to America. And it was it was a major big deal. And he, he himself was a collector. And so his art collection was, you know, just revered. And, and now actually pieces of his collection are in museums um, all over the, the country. Um, so here he is, he's this highly educated Irish American lawyer who is an art, a collector of modernist art. Um, and he is, he pro bono takes on the case to represent Margaret Anderson and Jane Heap. But hmm. he really does not. And he also, uh, let me also say, he also really loves Joyce's writing. Um, you know, I think that there was there was a certain amount of um, uh, affection for for Joyce because of the because of the fact that he's Irish, right. and and John Quinn, you know, comes from um, an Irish family, although in America. So there's all kinds of connections there, and he sees also like Sylvia does, and like Margaret and Jane do, that Joyce's writing is like the writing of the future. It's it's remaking literature, right? So he sees all of this, but. Um, he and he takes on the case to represent Jane and Margaret pro bono, but he really does not like Margaret and Jane. They are also a lesbian couple. They live in Washington Square, which, you know, um, at the time was, you know, the heart of Bohemian New York. Um, so folks like John Quinn really wanted to distance themselves from that part of New York, from that part of the way people lived differently again. So John Quinn is this fascinating man who kind of straddled these two worlds. On the one hand, he was a collector of modernism, but he really 
the living of modernism kind of turned his stomach a little bit. Um, and, and, you know, I am not a legal scholar. And if you really want to, um, I think, delve more deeply into these issues, you should read the two books that I mentioned earlier by Kenneth Bur Kevin Birmingham and, and Joseph Hassett. But it does strike me that his internal, that those, that tension mm -hmm. between being a collector and but but really being put off by the the truth of modernism really became a failing in his ability to defend defend margaret and jane um i don't know it's really you know we don't know if he had been able to defend the book differently would it never have been banned we don't know would it be would it be safe to say that this was a watershed moment, though, for banned books? Because I know yes. right after that, if I'm not mistaken, if my chronology is right, you had things like Tropic of Cancer and books like that. But uh, then in the 60s, the Supreme Court, you know, determines the if you know it when you see it rule when it comes to pornography. But I mean, it, it seems to be a watershed. Am I right there? Uh, yes, 100 percent. It's a watershed, as is Judge Woolsey's decision to unban the book in the 1930s. You know, Judge Woolsey's uh, decision is was immediately put um, in written form in in the random house, the first random house editions of Ulysses. Um, and I think it's in most editions of Ulysses today. It's like the decision to reverse the ban became part of the canon. And, you know, honestly, in some ways, you know, from, with the benefit with the benefit of a hundred years of hindsight, you know, we wouldn't have it any other way, right? Like the fact that Ulysses had to be banned and then had to be unbanned. Yeah. Both of those moments changed literary history um, in really important ways. So as painful as it was for Joyce and all the people involved at the time, um, we really benefit from all of those machinations today. Carrie, I'd like to talk to you about some of the personalities because the, the book is, is, as I say, it's a story, it has an arc, but it also has these great historical figures. And you mentioned Hemingway, he's larger than life. But uh, two I want to talk to you about. One is Gertrude Stein, uh, who comes off as a little prickly and so forth. Uh, <laughs> and then I want to talk about Ezra Pound, because I did some research after reading your book. Um, wasn't impressed with his career as a, as yeah. a politician. But let's talk about Gertrude Stein, because that's a name that, that a lot of people are familiar with from movies and, and literature. Yeah, so you know Gertrude Stein um, is another um, famous lesbian in this from this time period. I think everyone knows that she lived um, essentially a married life with Alice Toklas, um, who she wrote the autobiography right. of Alice B. Toklas, um, and she she also was also a great collector of uh, uh, post impressionist art. And so her apartment in Paris was the salon to be invited to because not only were you going to get to talk to Gertrude. Stein about writing and and all and Paris and all the things you would do that surrounded by Picasso's and Cezanne mm. and Matisse paintings. I mean, what an amazing what an amazing thing to be able to do. Interesting character. And, and she, yeah, I know, yeah. right? But she was a prickly character and a person, I would yeah. say. Yeah. And um, you know, she she really resisted Joyce and his writing. She was not thrilled that that Joyce became a a fixture in Paris. Um, I think that there was an element of competition there. They were both kind of doing. They were both remaking literature during this time period. Um, and you know, I don't want to over determine anybody's reading of my novel or or any or anybody else's work. 
um, that involves their their um, their literature. They both made like huge contributions to literature yeah. during yeah. these decades. Now, Ezra Pound is a famous poet, but I didn't know anything about him beyond that until I started reading your book and I, I started the Google process because I wanted to know more. And his yeah. uh, his life took some weird turns, especially during World War II. But at yeah. the time, uh, let's just talk about him in context. At the time, he was a, a, a big fan of Sylvia's, it seems, and he was a proponent, right? A backer. Yeah, you know, Ezra really runs up on the wrong side of history, you know, <laughs> you know, joining with the, you know, sympathizing with the Italian fascists and everything. But, you know, this is 20 years before that. Um, he's a young poet. Um, he's made something of a name for himself. But but maybe more important than him as a poet himself is the fact that he's really he is like an editor and a consultant on numerous of these avant garde literary journals that are coming out of London and, and New York at this time. And he he is, he's also, he's a tastemaker and he's a, um, I'm, I'm not going to find the right word, but he's a person who brings other people together. Mm. So he lands in Paris um, by 1920 and he loves it there. And he thinks that this is the place. Paris is the place. And so he is the one who convinces James Joyce to come. He's the one who brings, T.S. Eliot never settles in Paris, but he visits very often. So it's, Ezra Pound is like the magnet for many of these very important American and um, and British Irish writers to come to Paris during this time period, um, and he he all, he's one of Sylvia's very first um, uh, American customers, and you know he he and Sylvia have a, sort of a lovely a lovely friendship. They believe in a lot of the same things, um, and. Yeah, I mean, he's. I also love the fact that you know, I, I just, I, it's in my novel, and I discovered it in my research is that he also was sort of an amateur carpenter, which, you know, those are the things you discover in your research that really bring somebody to life. So here is this is this poet who puts people together and puts a movement together, a movement we now call modernism, right? Who also puts wood together, pieces of wood together to make furniture, which I just absolutely loved. It, it reminded me, um, not that I'm a, a historically that accurate, perhaps, but the Algonquin Roundtable in America, these brilliant yes. people. I mean, you know, they're haughty and arty and funny and witty. And you, you get them together in Algonquin Hotel uh, or you get them together in a bookstore uh, <laughs> with yes. the accompanying yes. cafes. And and one more question about Joyce. He, he is sickly throughout this period, uh, has some issues. But you also write about his family. I had no idea what kind of life he had outside of writing. Uh, he did have a wife. He did have children. Uh, what did you find out about his his personal life? Yeah, you know, I think so. Um, you know, the 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 inspiring event for Ulysses was actually his first date with his his wife Nora Barnacle um, in 1904 in Dublin. He was he really. He was very much in love with Nora his whole life. And um, they had two children together, um, Giorgio and Lucia. Lucia had some really um, uh, difficult uh, mental illness in the course of her life, which I do not get into deeply in the course of my novel. It just didn't, because it's really from my novels, from Sylvia's point of view, it just wasn't, didn't feel right to go there too, too much, but it's kind of happening in the background. Um, and... Uh, but but Sylvia and Nora, I'm sorry, Sylvia and Nora, um, jo Joyce and Nora um, 
are common law man and wife for most of their relationship. And they, they ultimately need to get married for a couple of kind of like legal estate reasons later in their relationship. Um, but I, I'll actually put in a plug for another historical novel called Nora, written by an Irish writer named uh, Nula O'Connor. It came out last year and it's it's like mine. It's a, what's sort of known as a biographical novel. So it's a novel and it's from Nora's point of view. Um, and so if you're interested in finding more, out more about Nora and Joyce and their children as a family, I really recommend that. Well, I want to recommend this book because it's so interesting how you can learn about everything going on in the time period that a book comes out or a book is published or a book is conceived everything around it comes to life and and has sort of new meaning uh and i know you've done other historical novels but what a great premise to just talk about what happened in one little bookstore in one little part of the world that changed the world it's uh remarkable and i think when people pick it up they'll realize it's the title is a little deceiving because it's not just about paris it's about the world isn't it (laughs) Well, thank you. I certainly think so. But Paris, oh, come on. Paris is the world, right? That's <laughs> like... true. Yeah, that, that's true. What am I saying? I would, my wife, my wife would have my head on a platter because she's a lover of Paris and speaks fluent French. And I just, when I go to, when I go to France, if, if I ever get there again, uh, all I do is speak English in a French accent and uh, it doesn't really <laughs> do anything. Well, you're delightful. Thank you so much uh, for writing the Paris bookseller and all the others. Are you working on an idea at least for the next one? Yes. So so my first three novels have all just really, truly and purely by accident have involved American women who find themselves in Europe. <laughs> um but my fourth novel is going to be about, um, is not going to go to Europe. It's going to be in set in Chicago in the early 1970s. I'll just, I'll leave it okay. there. Okay. We'll be ready to say hello to that one when it comes out and perhaps have you back to talk about that. But it's been delightful meeting you, a neighbor in Massachusetts, and uh, you've written a sparkling novel. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. She's the highly rated best-selling American novelist Carrie Mayer, who brings history to life in her latest book, The Paris Bookseller. Get it on Amazon, of course, or wherever fine books are sold. Thanks, as always, to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for his help in publishing these podcasts internationally. Also, thank you to the crew at Chark Productions in Boston, our production house where we produce this and many other podcasts. And a special thank you, as always, to you for downloading and subscribing the show, for rating and reviewing the show, and just for being there. Certainly appreciate that. To find out more about me, my book on air, my 50-year love affair with radio, and this podcast, simply visit my website, jordanrich.com. That's J-O-R-D-A-N-R-I-C-H.com. And by the way, write to me, email me. I'd love to hear from you anytime. Until we meet again, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.